Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of a new day, and we thank you for the gift of making us a new people. And we pray that you'd bless us as we study Romans chapter 4, that we would learn something new about you and your kingdom, and that we would see ourselves as your covenant partners, brought in not through works, but through grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to break Romans 4 into two sections, and so let me read the first section, do a little teaching, and we'll then have some conversation. Paul writes, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David speaks of the blessedness of those in whom God reckons righteousness, irrespective of works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also followed the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. I'll go ahead and end there. Okay, so Paul begins, what then are we to say was gained by Abraham? Now, why Abraham? Well, this is the one whom God formed a covenant with. And just to kind of know in the background, you know, why did God form a covenant with Abraham? And it's important to note that Jews in Jesus's day would have had an understanding that God called Abraham to undo and resolve the problem of Adam. And so if you read Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's a pretty um, kind of disappointing narrative of humanity. You've got the story of the fall, but then things go from bad to worse with Cain killing Abel and God flooding the world and the sons of Noah you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and the Tower of Babel is the culmination of that, where everyone's trying to reach the heavens and make a name for themselves, and it gets so bad that God says, okay, I'm going to choose one man, Abraham, or Abram, form a covenant with him, and through that, I'm going to undo the problems of the human race in and through this covenant. And so that is the background to where why Paul goes all the way back to Abraham. But then, in verse 2, Paul wants to make it clear that Abraham was not justified, or to kind of be true to the Greek, I think the best meaning, made God's covenant partner. Um, Abraham was not made God's covenant partner by works or circumcision or anything he did, but rather through the grace of God. 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, And that word reckoned, it can also be translated counted, calculated, computed. I like the word gifted, but essentially something is gifted to Abraham apart from the law, apart from works. Um, Now, this phrase, reckoned to him as righteousness, I think it's important to name that this phrase only appears twice in the Old Testament. And I think it's important for us to know where that phrase appears because Paul is drawing on two very specific things. The first is very obvious uh, because Paul quotes the story. It's Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with Abram. You might remember the story that there's these animals that are cut in two and a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passes between the pieces of the dead animals. And essentially, back in the day, if you were to make a covenant, you know, you'd cut up an animal, you'd walk between the pieces symbolically and say, may I be like these dead animals if I break my covenant with you. And so essentially what God is doing is passing between these pieces and saying, um, may I be cursed, Abram, if I do not honor my covenant with you. And Paul alludes to Genesis 15, where Abram believes God and it is reckoned to him as righteousness. But the second place is not as obvious, but it's very important. And that's Psalm 106, verses 30 through 31, which says, Then Phinehas stood up and interceded, and the plague was stopped, and that has been reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Now, if you don't know who Phinehas is, he was the very zealous grandson of Aaron, uh, who in Numbers chapter 25 um, killed an Israelite man and a Midianite woman with a spear, Uh, who are really these examples of Israel falling into idolatry. A plague had broken out uh, because the people were not faithful, but whenever Phinehas uh, does this act, the plague is stopped. It's a very strange story. It's it's incredibly bizarre to the modern reader, Uh, but in the context of Numbers, what Phineas does is essentially renew the covenant, renew the commitment to the priesthood, and stops a plague— And it says um, uh, that it shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for God and made atonement for the Israelites. And so, again, you can read about this in Numbers 25. It's a bizarre story, but the larger point being made, right, because this idea of the phrase reckoned as righteousness being tied not just to Genesis 15 but to the story of Phinehas is that what Paul is doing, and Paul is brilliant, right, because he's bringing together God's covenant, the renewing of the covenant, the stopping of the plague, the end of idolatry, making atonement, and a return to life as a royal priesthood, which Paul will pick up again in Romans 12 when he says things like, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, What Paul is doing with this phrase, reckoned as righteousness, is bringing all of that together. And I don't want us to miss that because this phrase doesn't appear out of the blue. It is bringing together all these deeply symbolic, important pieces of the Old Testament 
but reappropriating them to the present moment and tying them to what Jesus the King has done. Okay, uh, verse four, Paul writes, "Now to one who works, wages are reckoned as a gift, not as a gift, but as something due." Um, but to the one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. That word wages, wages are not reckoned as a gift. Um, another way you can actually translate that Greek word is reward. Uh, a reward is not reckoned as something due, but rather as a gift. And the reason I like the translation reward a little bit better is because it builds right off of Genesis 15.1, where it says... Uh, where God says to Abram, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And so uh, I don't want us to miss that this uh, verse, Romans 4, 4, is a direct tie-in to Genesis 15, 1. Um, To keep going a little bit, then Paul switches now that it's very clear that there is a blessedness that has been pronounced as a gift. The question then becomes, well, who is the gift for? Is it for the circumcised? Is it for the Jews? Is it for the descendants of Abram according to the flesh? Or is it also for others, for the uncircumcised? And by the way, we get the answer in verse 5 when Paul writes, but to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly. Paul is not here passing a moral judgment on people he believes to be sinful, the ungodly is code for the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles are just the ungodly. And so Paul has already said that God justifies or brings into the covenant, that's what the word justification means in the context of Roman, not just the circumcised, but also the ungodly, the uncircumcised. And so that's code for the Gentiles. And Paul takes a very clear position. Um, that all circumcised and uncircumcised can be brought into the covenant, and that this is in perfect congruence with how God called Abraham, because it was faith that was credited to Abraham as righteousness or covenantal partnership with God. Um, and this is the point Paul makes in verse 10. How then was it reckoned, how, how then was it reckoned to him? And Paul is very clear, it wasn't after he was circumcised, but rather before. And that circumcision was merely a sign of the seal of righteousness or covenantal partnership that Abraham enjoyed by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so Paul essentially says, before Abraham was uncircumcised, he was still made righteous or justified or made God's covenantal partner through faith and grace. And if Abram was made a covenant partner before he was circumcised, then the Gentiles can be God's covenant partners too, even though they don't have the sign of circumcision. And so what Paul is doing is addressing a very specific issue, right? You've got Jews and Gentiles. You have those who have received the sign of circumcision, a sign of covenantal membership, and those who have not. And the question is, who's in, right? Did the Gentiles have to convert to keep the law of Moses to receive the sign of circumcision? And Paul takes a very clear stand, no. 
because Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh, was justified by faith. Righteousness was credited to him before he received the sign of circumcision. So I'll go ahead and stop there, and we'll see what questions, comments you have. Verse 13, for the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words it was reckoned were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, a few quick notes. For the promise he would inherit the world. This is a reference to God calling Abram and saying, Abram, look at the stars of the sky, count them if you can. Uh, so numerous shall your descendants be. And so the point that Paul is making is that it was always God's intent to give Abraham a very, very large family, meaning not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Uh, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Now, contextually, this is part of Paul's larger argument that justification does not come through keeping the works of the law, but I think this is one of those points that has a really important modern equivalent. And uh, although we typically don't condemn people, for breaking God's commandments, and certainly not for all the cultural ceremonial commandments that are in the book of Leviticus, etc. Um, I think it's important to name that there's law with a big L, you know, God's law, but then there's law with a little L. And I think this idea of the law bringing wrath isn't much different from what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount judge not lest you be judged. And so think about the relationships you have with other people and all the little L laws that you both receive from them and inflict upon them. These are the shoulds, the musts, the oughts, the way that you pressure other people to behave in certain ways and the ways that they pressure you to behave in certain ways. 
And what that tends to do is to lead to anger and misunderstanding. It leads to wrath. Uh, Telling someone how they should be never changes how they actually are. Only faith and grace can do that. And so this idea of the law bringing wrath is perhaps one of the most relevant concepts in day-to-day relationships, and it's worth meditating on more fully. Um, Verse 16, for this reason, it, it being justification or covenantal membership, uh, depends on faith. And I love this verse. It says, the promise will rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants. The promise rests on grace. So if it doesn't rest on circumcision or the law, what does it rest on? It rests on grace. Uh, And so whatever's happening here uh, is going to be all based on the grace of God. And then Paul explains what that grace is, and he does so with an image and a wonderful verse where he said, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. And so this is a reference both to resurrection and to creation, right? God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. You and I really don't create. We form. We take that which is already there and put it together to make something more beautiful. But creation is out of nothing. It's about resurrection. It's about giving life or bringing life out of nothing And essentially what Paul is saying is that this is what God did through Abraham. And he quotes that wonderful story about Abraham being 100 years old and Sarah being 100 years old. They were barren. Um, You know, I'm not a medical doctor, but my understanding is that 2,500 years ago that people who were 100 uh, could not have children just like they can't today. And so this was a miraculous birth. It was God calling into existence something that otherwise could not exist. And it's worth noting that it's meant to foreshadow, I believe, another miraculous birth from whom the true Israelite will emerge, which we celebrate uh, every Christmas. But what God does is take an impossible situation, a 100-year-old man, and out of that fulfills his covenant. And what Paul is saying is that this is what grace is, that it is God's doing, not our doing. But what did Abraham do? Well, he gave glory to God, verse 20. Now, this idea of giving glory to God, we throw around that phrase, but it means two very specific things, I believe, in the context of Romans. Um, Number one, Uh, To give glory to God means that Abraham believes that God actually does create life out of nothing, and this is what resurrection faith is all about. And I think in the same way that you and I give glory to God, when we really entered that place that Abram did as a 100-year-old man who wanted a son to say, if this is going to happen, God must do it. I might be an instrument. I might have a part to play, but it has to be God's doing. God must call into existence that which does not exist. And I believe that whenever we enter that posture in our life, we also give glory to God. But second, part of what this means is giving credit to God. Um, Now, it's very subtle, but if we go back to Romans 1.18, 
um, Paul talks about fallen humanity who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, and this is the opposite of what Abraham does, because the truth is, is that God must create out of nothing. God must bring into being uh, that which is good and healing to the world, and that our work is to trust not in the created thing, which is idolatry, but rather in the creator. And so it's a very subtle tie-in, but I think Paul is tying back what he's already written in Romans 1.18. One other thing I want to point out, it's very, very subtle, but in verse 16, he says, Abraham is the father of us all. At the very beginning of the epistle, he is talking about Abraham being our ancestor according to the flesh. And so in verse 1, he's speaking to the Jews. Abraham is our ancestor according to the flesh. But that's not the point. The point isn't that he is our ancestor according to the flesh. Uh, As Jesus told Nicodemus, what is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. Um, And at one point, I think Jesus even says the flesh is useless, right? So the point is not that Abraham is our ancestor. The point is that Abraham is our father, meaning we are all part of one family. And so when Paul talks about being um, reckoned or faith being reckoned to us who believe, well, what's actually credited to us is membership in this new family. Uh, and Martha said earlier, I'm ready to get on with, you know, other, other stuff. Well, good news. Uh, once we start in chapter 5, we're kind of past the whole who's in controversy And Paul is going to introduce something that's going to run chapters 5 through 8 of, well, what does it actually mean to be in this family and for the Holy Spirit to create in us a completely new humanity? And so that's where Paul is going to go in the coming chapters. Final thing I want to point out, verse 25, it says, Jesus was handed over to death for our trespasses. Um, The Greek word there is paradidomai. And you might remember from our study of chapter 1, where there's that repetition, God gave them up, or God handed them over. God gave them up to depravity. God gave them up to their sins. Basically, God handed over humanity to their idolatry. And we all read that and said, well, that's really bad news. This sounds like a real downer. But remember, Paul was only setting this up of God handing us over to our own folly, because there's a greater handing over that's going to happen with Jesus. And so there's a little bit of parallelism going on there, where the handing over of humanity to their own folly is trumped by the handing over of the Son to the cross to die for our sins and be raised for our justification.